Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden visiting Poland today to discuss the refugee crisis. He also just struck a gas deal with the European Union. International sanctions following Russia's invasion of Ukraine have beaten down Russia's economy. At the same time, Russian inflation skyrockets to its highest level in over six years. A Ukrainian official says his country is using face recognition technology on dead Russian soldiers. They hope to reach the soldiers' families through social media. And Russians are panic buying drugs over concerns of possible supply shortages. Sales data shows their demand for medicines almost doubled in March. President Joe Biden is visiting Poland today. It's the last stop on his European trip. He's meeting with allies about Russia's war in Ukraine. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. President Biden headed to Poland Friday after meeting with world leaders in Brussels. He's visiting a Polish city near the Ukrainian border. He'll talk with Poland's president about the humanitarian crisis from the conflict in Ukraine. The United Nations says some two million Ukrainians have fled to Poland. Biden says the U.S. will take in 100,000 refugees. The United States is prepared to commit more than $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to help get relief to millions of Ukrainians affected by the war in Ukraine. Biden also meet with U.S. troops stationed in Poland. Earlier Friday, Biden and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announced a deal to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian energy. It involves an international task force committed to the issue. We're coming together to reduce Europe's dependence on Russian energy. We've agreed on a joint game plan toward that goal while accelerating our progress toward a secure, clean energy future. Russia provides over 40 percent of the EU's gas and coal imports and around a quarter of its oil. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the EU is trying to shift away from Russian energy. But European Council President Charles Michel said they need help to do it. And that's why this week's talks with the U.S. and Canada were important. We need partners in order to accelerate the process, in order to be less dependent as soon as possible. Under the deal, the United States pledged an additional 15 billion cubic meters of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, to EU markets this year alone, with more expected in the future. Moscow calls its actions in Ukraine a special military operation to disarm Ukraine's military and oust people it regards as dangerous nationalists. In response to the invasion, the EU already said it'll cut Russian gas by two-thirds this year and phase out Russian energy altogether by 2027. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And in the U.S. Senate, a vote to remove Russia's most favored trade status has been delayed, at least until next week. Some Republicans raise concerns that its human rights provisions might be too broad. Russia's economy has taken a huge hit from global sanctions following its invasion of Ukraine. The penalties have largely taken the country out of global financial dealings, and now the ruble is losing a lot of value. Not only that, but Russian stocks and bonds have been taken off of indexes. The Russian people will likely suffer some form of economic hardship for years into the future. Let's look at the rankings. Russia used to be the world's 11th largest economy, but according to a former Goldman Sachs economist, by the end of the year, it could drop to 15th or lower. 
The country is likely going to experience a recession, and its economy may contract by 8% this year. Russia's central bank polled economists who say inflation is set to reach 20%. Right now, Russia's annual inflation rate is 14.53%. That's the highest it's been since 2015. It's up over 7% in the past year and about 2% from a week ago. The ruble tumbled to an all-time low in early March, and demand for goods is up quite a bit because people expect prices will rise even more. Part of the problem stems from panic buying. But with the ruble losing strength, prices may stay high. And just before the invasion, 74 rubles equaled the U.S. dollar. Now the ruble is worth 120 per dollar locally and 160 per dollar in offshore trade. The exchange rate has yet to come into equilibrium for on and offshore, though on Wednesday, the ruble was the strongest it had been in weeks. That was after Russia set out to sell natural gas to countries Putin referred to as unfriendly toward Moscow. Transactions, he says, must happen in rubles. Yesterday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz rejected that idea. Well, let's uh, try to get an overview of the situation. What we've learned so far means that there are uh, contracts uh, that define the currency. The currency is part of the contract, and this contract's, um, uh, contract holds true. And it reads euro or dollars. This is the basic situation we assume. What's more, Russian stocks are down. Today was their second day of trading after being suspended for almost a month. Before yesterday, no stock trading was happening at Moscow's exchange since the day after the invasion. The benchmark MOEX index was down about 3%. Airline Aeroflot led the losses. It lost over a quarter of its value in two days. And today, more securities were being traded, but there are restrictions. Those include foreigners not being able to trade and a ban on short selling. As far as Thursday's rebound, commodity stocks led with double-digit growth. But securities lost ground, almost all of them. Ukraine has started using facial recognition technology to identify dead Russian soldiers. A senior government official says they are trying to reach fallen soldiers' families through social media. Ukraine's vice prime minister says the country is using facial recognition software on the bodies of dead Russian troops. So we are actively, very actively using AI solutions. We are now also using facial recognition engines to do facial recognition of Russian soldiers. As a courtesy to the mothers of those soldiers, we are disseminating this information over social media to at least let their family know they lost their sons and to enable them to come and collect their bodies. The software is known as Clearview AI, a New York-based company that looks for images online to recognize faces and uploaded photos. So the way it works is that when we run this facial recognition system on the face of a dead soldier, then we identify their social media presence and then we contact their accounts to get a hold of their family just to let them know that a certain person has been killed in Ukraine to enable them to claim the body. But collecting images online has drawn the company into a lawsuit regarding privacy laws. Critics have also decried the risk of errors in facial recognition technology. Ukrainian authorities did not reveal the number of dead Russian soldiers already identified. Yet, as the ground thaws, remains are piling up and are becoming a problem. Ukraine's military said about 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed since the invasion. Moscow still hasn't officially updated its casualty toll for almost three weeks. Commenting on Ukraine's use of facial recognition software, a Kremlin spokesman said Moscow had no knowledge of it. Tough Western sanctions are driving Russians to panic buy, 
and at the top of their shopping list, pharmaceuticals like antidepressants and sleeping pills. Data shows Russian demand for medicines almost doubled this month. Sales data shows that since the attack on Ukraine began, Russians have been stocking up on pharmaceutical products. I myself take L-thyroxine as I have issues with thyroid gland, so I'm taking it daily and I'm worried about it. That's why I bought it for a couple of months to last. According to analytic company DSM Group, from February 28th to March 13th, Russians bought about 270 million medicines, worth more than $1 billion combined. That number is almost on par with sales data from the entire month of January. Unfortunately, the situation we're facing is the consequence of fear and panic buying. To say frankly, we are all to blame. Demand is surging for both domestically and foreign-produced medicines. Among the most popular products are antidepressants, sleeping pills and insulin. We can see that there is a temporary shortage of number of drugs, but this won't be a problem soon as almost all of the foreign producers made these claims of continuation of supply. Those who didn't say anything, they continue working here as usual. But some Russians say they're not deterred by the panic. There might be some shortages, especially if the medicine is imported, but I think it will all come back because politics is politics, but the economics is economics. They all need to sell, they all need to gain profit, so it'll all be back. Western sanctions against Moscow are unsettling for the Russian people, though official polls suggest most of them support Vladimir Putin's decision. Many foreign brands have decided to withdraw from Russia or suspend their operations in the country. Prices of many everyday essentials have soared as the value of the ruble has fallen sharply against the dollar. Police in Britain say they've arrested seven people following a series of hacks by the Lapsus Hacking Group. The group targeted major firms, including Okta and Microsoft. Okta is partly a cloud software firm, and it's based in San Francisco. It said it was hit by hackers, and some customers may have been affected. The company's authentication services are used by some of the world's biggest companies to provide access to their networks. The ransom-seeking gang posted a series of screenshots of the cloud company's internal communications on their Telegram channel. Detective Michael O'Sullivan said seven people between the ages of 16 and 21 were arrested. News of the digital breach knocked the software firm's shares down about 11 percent. This amid criticism of the firm's slow response to the intrusion. City of London police did not directly name Lapsus in its statement, and a spokeswoman said none of the seven people arrested were formally charged, pending investigation. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine drags on, cyber attacks and the threat of them have come into the spotlight. We hear from Larry Clinton, who is an internet security expert he provides some insight into the likelihood of a Russian cyber attack on critical U.S. infrastructure. Clinton also discusses how Russian cyber attacks against the U.S. or Ukraine relate to the Geneva Convention, a set of treaties that deal in part with the treatment of people outside of combat during war. It does not seem to apply, or at least it is not being exercised as applying. So the Geneva War, the Geneva Convention, has a number of very specific uh, provisions to it, uh, such as you're not supposed to be uh, attacking civilian uh, targets. You're supposed to uh, wear a uniform uh, so that combatants can be easily identified, et cetera. 
none of these apply in, in terms of cyber warfare. So cyber attacks, which we've known of for over a decade, going back to the Russian uh, attacks on Estonia uh, nearly 10 years ago, uh, subsequent attacks in Georgia, uh, these have generally not been uh, dealt with uh, as uh, violations of the Geneva Convention, although quite arguably uh, they are uh, violations. Uh, they are attacks on civilian, uh, 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 civilian uh, facilities. Uh, there is no signature, uh, so that you can't tell who the attacks are from, uh, all of which are pretty much direct violations of the Convention. So we seem to be in relatively uncharted waters with regard to international law as it respects cyber. Now, President Biden has warned U.S. companies to be on alert for Russian cyber attacks. Do you think that this is anticipated, that we'll expect to see them? I would suggest that those are warnings and well-placed warnings. Uh, I don't personally anticipate that uh, Mr. Putin would engage in that kind of uh, activity. I think that that would be uh, coming pretty close to uh, triggering uh, Article 5 uh, of, of, uh, of the NATO Convention would be perceived as a direct attack in this context uh, on a native NATO country, U.S. Uh, and I, I doubt that uh, Putin is interested in engaging the U.S. at that particular level. However, there are a variety of things that Putin could uh, assist with that are not direct military attacks, uh, such as from the Russian army. For example, the, the recent attacks uh, on colonial pipeline are well known to have been uh, originated in Russia, uh, probably almost certainly with uh, the acquiescence of uh, the Putin government. Uh, and yet they were criminal attacks, they weren't military attacks. Uh, and that distinction gave Putin a little bit of cover. Senator Joe Manchin all but ensures that Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, Manchin released a statement saying he will support Jackson's nomination to the high court. If Senate Democrats vote unanimously in Jackson's favor, they can confirm her without any Republican backing. If the vote is partisan and split 50-50, Vice President Kamala Harris would then cast the tie-breaking ballot. A vote has not been scheduled yet. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was released from the hospital this morning. That's according to the high court's spokeswoman. Last Friday, 73-year-old Thomas went to Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. after suffering flu-like symptoms. Thomas received antibiotics for an infection. He did not test positive for COVID-19. A Republican congressman from Nebraska has been found guilty of three felony counts. Representative Jeff Fortenberry was charged last October for concealing information and making false statements to federal authorities. The charges were related to an investigation into illegal contributions during his 2016 campaign. Fortenberry has served in Congress since 2005. He was charged with one count of scheming to falsify and conceal material facts and two counts of making false statements to federal investigators. Each charge carries a maximum penalty of five years in federal prison, as well as fines. The jury returned the verdicts within just hours of deliberations after a week-long trial in Los Angeles. Fortenberry told reporters he would appeal the decision immediately. He says he believes the trial was unfair. It's not clear if the GOP candidate will suspend his campaign for re-election. He says he plans to spend time with his family. Tuscaloosa police say they've recovered three bodies from a vehicle submerged 
in Holt, Alabama. They say the victims are a 72-year-old man and two women ages 53 and 42. The National Weather Service says the county received more than three and a half inches of rain Tuesday. Investigators believe the vehicle became disabled and sank into floodwaters. Researchers in Europe say they've discovered microplastics in human blood for the first time. Though the effects are unclear, the researchers say there is reason to be concerned. A scientist in the Netherlands spoke to The Guardian. He said their study is the first sign that polymer particles are in some people's blood. He says that more studies are needed. Researchers in the Netherlands obtained blood samples from 22 anonymous donors. They were tested for five types of plastics. 17 of the donors had microplastics in their blood. One researcher says it's reasonable to be concerned about the study's results. The health effects of ingesting microplastics are not yet clear, but one study from last year asserted they can cause cellular death or allergic reactions. The study was in part commissioned by Common Seas, an activist group that pushes for new policies to deal with plastic pollution and contamination. Drug makers AbbVie and Endo have been ordered to turn over materials related to the sale of puberty blockers to children who believe they are transgender. The demand comes from the Texas Attorney General. There is growing controversy over the use of medication given to halt the development of puberty in children who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he is investigating whether the pharmaceutical companies are promoting hormone therapies to children and their parents without disclosing potential long-term effects. He says that certain medications were approved by the Food and Drug Administration for other medical conditions, but were being used to halt puberty in children. Negotiators for Chevron and the United Steelworkers Union are scheduled to meet next week. This in an effort to end a strike at a San Francisco area refinery. A USW Local 5 union official says the negotiators are scheduled to meet on Monday. And a Chevron spokesperson said the company is looking forward to joining the discussion. Workers were removed from the refinery by Chevron after the local union issued a strike notice to the company. This followed the collapse of talks after union members twice rejected contract proposals. The strike began shortly after 12 a.m. on Monday. The previous contract expired on February 1st, but was being extended on a rolling 24-hour basis. The union sought an additional 5% pay increase on top of a 12% raise over four years. Union officials say the additional 5% would mostly offset increases in health care costs for union members in the San Francisco Bay Area, which has a high cost of living. Coming up, food truck owners struggle amid rising gas costs and inflation. They're forced to raise prices to try to cope, but they didn't want to skimp on quality. The Oscars try to regain ratings after viewership dropped dramatically in the past two years. They've made changes to the hosts and the categories for this year's edition. More soon here on NTD News.
Surging gas prices across the country are hitting food truck owners hard. They say the weekly costs are adding up quickly, forcing them to make changes that will impact their customers' pockets. Here's a report from Charlotte, North Carolina. Sizzling, savory, sauteed, or smashed. However you like your meal. Do you want any jalapenos? It's probably served somewhere on wheels. So I got a sub, no mayo, light tomato, and a chips and salsa. But these days, it's not cheap to eat mobile. The prices, everything is going up. Gas is especially hitting us. The one-two punch of inflation and gas prices is forcing food trucks from California to the Carolinas to tap the brakes. Have a good day. It's very uncertain right now. Serving up well-seasoned American fare from his B. Cook's food truck. I don't skip on the seasoning. Brian Anderson says the rising cost of food and supplies has already impacted his menu. So I would pay maybe $60 for a case of salmon. Now I'm paying close to $90 for a case of salmon. But when the price of gas started to spike last month... I have propane, I have diesel, and regular gas. He had to introduce a price increase of his own. I could have managed with one or the other, but both at the same time, I'm just like, okay. During the height of the pandemic, with restaurants closed around the country, when customers craved a chef's cooking, these gourmet gas guzzlers cashed in on changing habits. Now many are struggling to survive. I don't know what we're going to do. In Uptown Charlotte, Felicia Reese is changing her packaging and charging for condiments now. Do you need any ketchup or anything? But says she can't stomach the cost of ingredients. We have golf shrimp that we're using. Um, it used to be like $120 a case, and now it's like $200 a case. Inflation data show the differences are real. Food prices rose 1% in February, the largest monthly increase in nearly two years. But over just the past 12 months, they went up 7.9%, the biggest spike since July 1981. Gas prices shot up more than 6.5% last month and 38% in the past year. And these numbers barely scratch the surface of any impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine may have on prices in the U.S. We were paying $60 for a tank of diesel, and now we're paying like $90. Our generator, it was about $8 to fill it up, and now it's like $30. You always want like a, just a regular corn tea on the side? It's been a double whammy for the tin kitchen and its two trucks. Travel fee was something that we're charging now because, which is not something we used to charge. Tara? <laughs> In business for a dozen years, Michael Terrell says he's never seen anything like this. It just sucks. It just sucks. Saving money by limiting where they go and what they serve. We reduce our menu for sure. Uh, we're making sure that the spots that we're going to are either nearby or it's going to be worth our trip out there. Permanently parking is not an option for these food truckers, but they do hope help in any form shows up. I have to just be strong and just, you know, fight through it. But I do wish that someone would just, you know, put their foot down and be like, okay, hey. These guys were killing it during the pandemic. Let's do something about it. Let's keep them going. Let's, you know, help them out a little bit. The nationwide average for a gallon of regular gas is still around 425. And for diesel, it's 505 a gallon. It's just a few cents cheaper in the Charlotte area. If Google searches are any indication, Americans' interest in electric cars reached a record high in March. The high price of gas is no doubt sparking a lot of added interest. But splashy TV commercials touting new electric vehicles from BMW and General Motors are also driving the trend. Automotive analysts point out that although demand may be high, the supply of all-electric cars is currently limited. 
Shortages of battery components and computer chips are among the supply chain issues keeping inventories low. Another barrier is the sticker price, as analysts say EVs are still prohibitively expensive for many U.S. households. The Academy Awards ceremony is this Sunday, and aside from the question of which film will win Best Picture, the Oscars have another big decision to make, how to retain viewers. Here are the details. Last year, just over 10 million people watched the live broadcast of the Academy Awards ceremony. That's a 56% drop in viewership from 2020. Steve Pond, the awards editor of The Wrap, says the Oscars have been on a slow decline. At this point, good ratings would, would be sort of close to what they got two years ago, which was the worst Oscars ratings in history up until that point. Um, so, you know, you're, you're never going to get what you were. And I think it, it worries them. I think it, it terrifies ABC. You know, I mean, the, the Academy's in, in trouble here. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences had to pay back money to host broadcaster ABC after their ratings fell so dramatically last year. And this year, the Oscars are diversifying their presenters, with Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall hosting. They've also cut eight categories from the live show. If the ratings drop lower than last year, then it, it's time to rethink the whole thing. I mean, that's, last year was, you know, was 10.4 million and the previous low was 24 million. So it has to rally from last year. The question is, you know, if it doesn't get above 15, 16 million, that's going to be really embarrassing. And, and then I think you're going to see major changes to the Oscar show. And for the 20th year this year, marketing firm Distinctive Assets is independently presenting the top acting and directing nominees with a gift bag worth $138,000. So these brands aren't just doing it to be kind. They are doing it because these are the best brand ambassadors in the world. So if Nicole Kidman does come to you for Botox and filler, everyone's going to want to come to you for Botox and filler because they're going to look as beautiful as Nicole does. The gift bag contains roughly 52 items, ranging from health and wellness products to a $50,000 vacation package. The nominees get to stay in Turin Castle in Scotland. The spread for the official Oscars after party was previewed. The Oscars are March 27th at the Dolby Theater. The nominees, presenters, performers, and attendees are invited to enjoy the governor's ball afterward. It will feature 40 or so dishes, Wolfgang Puck, is once again whipping up eats. They include dry-aged Wagyu beef sliders, Maine lobster pot pie, and cacio e pepe macaroni and cheese. New York-based Ghetto Gastro, a culinary collective, is new this year. Its offerings include ancestral roots fried chicken and waffles, cornbread crab and caviar, and crispy coconut rice with peas and sweet plantain. For dessert, chocolate sea salt Oscar eclairs grapefruit panna cotta, and s'mores macarons. As for drinks, Francis Ford Capala's Winery will have Chardonnay and Cabernet made specifically for the event. Just ahead, the latest on the China Eastern Airlines crash. Rescue teams are still searching for a second black box. Top Chinese and Indian diplomats held talks in New Delhi India's foreign minister says ties with China cannot be normal, citing tensions along the disputed border. Stay tuned to find out more.
North Korean state media says the country's latest weapons test was a new, powerful type of intercontinental ballistic missile. KCNA News said today that leader Kim Jong-un directly guided the Hwasong-17, North Korea's biggest missile to date. It was first showcased at a 2020 military parade. It was also the first ICBM test by the country since 2017. Kim was quoted saying the test was key to demonstrate the might of its nuclear force and deter any U.S. military moves and a miraculous and priceless victory by the Korean people. Flight data indicated the missile flew for 681 miles, higher and longer than any of North Korea's previous tests, before it crashed into the sea just west of Japan. North Korea's return to major tests of weapons that could potentially strike the U.S. poses a direct challenge to President Joe Biden as he responds to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The launch drew condemnation from U.S. officials as well as Japan and South Korea. South Korea's recent election raises the prospect of a fresh crisis after the launch. A new, more conservative government led by Yoon suk yeol has pledged a more muscular military strategy to counter Pyongyang. The UN Security Council will meet publicly on Friday to discuss the ICBM. The United States has imposed sanctions on two Russian companies and a North Korean entity. It's because they transferred sensitive items to North Korea's missile program. A Russian national and a North Korean national were also sanctioned. The announcement came on the same day North Korea said it tested its new, powerful type of intercontinental ballistic missile. It's the regime's first long-range missile test in four years. Experts are wondering how likely the missile is to be capable of holding one or more nuclear warheads. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the measures are meant to impede North Korea's ability to advance its missile program. And us also to highlight Russia's role in helping these kinds of programs. The U.S. also sanctioned a Chinese company. They said it's for supplying Syria with equipment believed to contribute to chemical or biological weapons. The State Department said the sanctions on the Chinese company underscore Beijing's shortcomings in implementing export controls and its non-proliferation track record. South Korean President-elect Yoon Suk-yeol held a phone conversation with China's Xi Jinping. He is the first president to make a phone call with the Chinese leader before taking office. Yoon's office said he asked Xi to coordinate closely on the complete denuclearization of North Korea. This comes one day after Pyongyang launched an intercontinental ballistic missile. Chinese state media reported that Xi stressed political trust between the two countries. Yoon will be sworn in on May 10th. But there's been speculation that Korea-China relations could come under test thanks to Yoon's tough stance on China throughout his presidential campaigns. While he acknowledged that China is the country's largest trading partner, Yoon promised that South Korea would push a U.S.-led Indo-Pacific regional security partnership. And hours after he was elected president earlier this month, he made a phone call with U.S. President Joe Biden. This is considered a sign of his policy of strengthening Korea's alliance with the U.S. A group of five Republican senators has a message for the U.S. Attorney General. They are asking him to formally recognize the threat of spying from the Chinese Communist regime. The senators told Attorney General Merrick Garland in a letter that the U.S. may not be able to effectively combat the regime's efforts at international repression. The reason they give 
is President Biden's termination of the China Initiative Program, a Trump-era anti-spy campaign. The program was ended to avoid what the Assistant Attorney General called a harmful perception of bias. The decision was criticized by some GOP lawmakers as a display of weakness. The letter follows the DOJ's unsealing of three espionage cases. The cases outlined alleged Chinese Communist Party operations to stalk, harass, intimidate, and even attack ethnic Chinese dissidents on U.S. soil. The victims are all people who had spoken out against the Chinese regime's human rights abuses. The senators request that the initiative be reinstated. India's foreign minister said relations with China couldn't be normal unless their troops pull back from each other on the disputed border. The senior diplomat just ended talks with his Chinese counterpart Wang Yi in New Delhi. He said tensions caused by Beijing's deployments could not be reconciled with their normal ties. Since clashes in the northern Himalayan region of Ladakh in June 2020, relations between the two countries have deteriorated sharply. 20 Indian and at least four Chinese soldiers have been killed in hand-to-hand combat. Since then, the two countries have deployed thousands of troops in the border region. Wang Yi is the highest-ranking official to visit India since the conflict. Ahead of his arrival, India had denounced his speech on the Kashmir issue. Regarding the sovereignty of the Muslim-majority region, China usually backs its close ally, Pakistan. But both India and China reject Western calls to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, claiming Moscow as a friend. Rescuers continue to search for a second black box from the China Eastern Airliner. This is the fifth day since the flight crashed in southern China. The search area has expanded in China's Guangxi region. The first black box, a cockpit voice recorder, was found on Wednesday and sent to Beijing for expert analysis. According to Chinese state media, preliminary results could take 10 to 15 days. Remains and personal belongings of the 132 people on board have been located, but no survivors. Debris from the crash is scattered across the hillsides of the crash site. More than 200 experts and 2,000 local residents have joined the rescue efforts. The Department of Transportation said Chinese authorities have invited the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board to participate in the probe, but they have yet to decide whether to make the trip to China, given visa and quarantine requirements. The accident was the first major air disaster in China in more than a decade. The cause of the incident remains unknown, but it has reportedly prompted the regime to step up safety checks in aviation and other industries. Up next, many Ukrainian residents have been sheltering underground for the past month. Hundreds of people have set up temporary homes inside a subway station in Kharkiv. Refugees fleeing Ukraine are trying to take their pets with them, and one Ukrainian horse owner went back into the country to rescue her horse. Find out more after the short break. It's been four weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine. Inside Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, hundreds of people have been living underground in a subway station for the past month. 
The city has been battered by bombs since the start of the war. Here are the details. In Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, there are destroyed or heavily damaged buildings on almost every block. The streets are eerily quiet and empty above ground. But deep underground in this subway station, families crowd together, sleeping side by side on concrete floors or in train cars. Surely it is not better than home, but it is livable. One can say our living conditions are better than others. What I mean is we are not right on the platform. My child and I are in the carriage. We get food. There is a toilet. We are doing fine. Most of the families came from the city's northern outskirts, which have suffered near-daily shelling since the start of the war. Many of them have been sheltering at the station since day one or two of the war. On February 26, the house next to ours and the whole area was under heavy shelling. That's why we decided to move here. It was very scary. Our house is right next to a tram depot. We decided to leave because we feared for our lives. Even underground, the war is ever-present. On Thursday, a Russian missile hit a subway station two stops away from this one, killing and wounding several people. Outside, while a crew cleaned up the shrapnel from the site, a car crammed with wounded Ukrainian soldiers raced past. There are lots of shrapnel here in the underground passage. I'm not even talking about the multitude of them outside, but we have them even here. This local journalist estimates that over 200 people are living in the station. They've set up temporary homes in train cars divided by curtains into smaller family rooms. There are about 250 people sheltering here. Many go out during the day to breathe fresh air, go to the supermarket, and this missile flew here. Russia continues to say that they do not target civilians. The United Nations estimates one in four Ukrainians have been forced out of their homes by Russia's invasion. Many of the people helping the refugees have no connection to Ukraine at all. We hear from an ambulance driver from Norway who was helping critically ill Ukrainians escape the war. The air raid sirens no longer startled Diedrich Gunestad. The sirens are telling us it's no danger anymore. With that, he eases the nerves of a mother and her two children he's just picked up at the train station. Tonight, he will drive them to Poland. Diedrich Gunestad struggles to explain how a 27-year-old from Norway has found himself driving an ambulance through the streets of Lviv. That's the most difficult question, actually. He's part of a volunteer team evacuating critically ill hospital patients and refugees from Ukraine. I just wanted to help do something, not sit at home and just look at everything on the TV. Most days, Diedrich drives into Lviv from Poland with an ambulance full of medical supplies and distributes the loads to hospitals facing grave shortages. Zorana Ivanyuk is the medical director of the St. Nicholas Hospital in Lviv. She says since the start of the war, her hospital has been overwhelmed treating everyday seriously ill patients. He brings us uh, some medicines, some equipment, uh, which we need uh, so much. That's why we are thankful for him and his team. It's really dream, dream team. Hospitals are struggling to handle all the patients needing critical life-saving care. That's where Diedrich's team comes in. We have just delivered 
a lot of equipment to that hospital and to another hospital. Uh, we went to the train station and picked up a few refugees as well. He's lost count of how many patients and refugees he's driven out of Ukraine. Good. I have helped a lot of kids, women and children who need to go out of the country. And in the places we are getting the people, they don't have anyone else. For right now, they only have us. Diedrich and his team of paramedics and nurses have spent almost three weeks crisscrossing the city, answering any call for help that comes in. This area of western Ukraine has seen just a few Russian airstrikes since the war started nearly a month ago. But Russian forces have targeted hospitals and civilians in eastern Ukraine. Diedrich knows he's driving into potential targets. It's a risk he's willing to take. It is. Because it's so meaningful what I'm doing. When I see these crying children uh, who are really sick and needs to get out, I, I feel a responsibility. For Diedrich Gunstad, it feels like the road to saving Ukrainians goes on forever. The arrival of a baby girl in Ukraine has become a source of hope for her mother and the doctors who delivered her. She was born in Mykolaiv, a southern port city in Russian, that Russian forces tried and failed to storm over the past 10 days. Just minutes old, baby Katya is unaware of the joy and solace she has brought. She was born in Mykolaiv, a Ukrainian port city on the Black Sea that has been under attack from Russian forces. Katya's mother, Tamara Kravchuk, is a 37-year-old gas station worker. The desperation and anxiety that dominated her thoughts before Katya's birth are gone, for now. No matter what happens now, I'm the happiest person. I feel totally fine. I just feel happiness because my daughter is healthy. God bless, there will be peace. Russian troops tried to enter the city on March the 4th, but were met with fierce resistance. There is no bomb shelter or basement at the maternity hospital. When the air raid sirens sound, people shelter in corridors or on the ground floor. Valentin Podorainchuk is the head of the maternity ward. He said the war brought a wave of new births in Mykolaiv as women went into labor induced by stress. Katya is the 49th baby to be born there since Russia launched its invasion on February the 24th. As fighting continues, Podarainchuk said Katya's arrival has given everyone at the hospital a reason to be hopeful. Many of the refugees fleeing Ukraine are able to take their pets along with them. And one Ukrainian woman who's already living abroad went back to Ukraine to take her horse out of the country with her. Let's take a look. So this is uh, my horse. Uh, he's uh, 17 years old. Ukrainian Masha Yefimova was already living abroad in Estonia, but had kept her horse Vasya near Kyiv. When the war broke out, she was determined to go back to Ukraine and fetch Vasya. Yefimova says she knew it would be dangerous to keep him there. So I thought that if I don't go to Ukraine, um, probably nobody will save him. And uh, and I yeah, and uh, two weeks ago, exactly like two weeks ago on Friday. I went from Estonia to Ukrainian border by car, not by my car, but I had to find the, the people to transport me. The journey to rescue Vasya and seven other horses from a small village near Kyiv took days of driving. We all had 
the most complicated and the longest journey of our life. And uh, sometimes we had to sleep in the stable with minus two temperature. Sometimes we didn't have food, not for people, not for horses. We didn't have enough of petrol. We had troubles with our cars, etc., etc. Yefimova and her horse are now resting at a small village in Poland near the Ukrainian border. She says she hopes to take Vasya home to the Estonian capital of Tallinn. And in Romania, near the border with Ukraine, volunteers are helping refugees fleeing with their pets. Uh, we are helping uh, refugees with pets, um, mostly dogs and cats, but also rodents, uh, to um, uh, do all their vaccinations that are needed to cross the European border. Uh, we are also making uh, passports for them, uh, European passports, because most of them uh, want to go further into Europe. The organization is called Paws of War. They're helping the refugees and their pets with food, crates, blankets, and anything that they might need in their future travels. A lion and a wolf from a zoo in Ukraine are now safely in Romania. Animal rights groups were able to evacuate the animals in a four-day operation. My NGO here runs a shelter of 300 dogs. We have cows, we, ha we have horses. But I have never thought in my life that I will come to rescue a lion and a, a wolf. But as I told you, we gathered uh, a lot of people and everybody just do something, did something and together. An animal rights group involved in the operation says the four-day mission was full of danger. Red tape at the border caused even more delays. The lion and the wolf traveled in cages in the back of a van. They were fully awake during the journey due to lack of tranquilizers in Ukraine. They arrived at a zoo in northern Romania on Monday. After the animals finish their quarantine, they will be relocated to animal sanctuaries. Coming up, the world's largest civilian hospital ship is complete and sails for Africa. The ship has been fitted with the latest medical technology in the Netherlands. That and more coming up on NTD News. The world's largest civilian hospital ship is complete and will soon set sail for Dakar in Africa. The vessel has been fitted with the latest medical technology in the Netherlands and will provide surgical care for sub-Saharan Africa. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. This is the Global Mercy, a 40,000-ton hospital ship with six operating rooms, eye and dental clinics, and the capacity to care for 200 inpatients. We target areas of the world where there is not access to free, uh, to affordable, to timely and um, safe surgery. So we particularly go to areas where that's very difficult and our patients sometimes have waited years or decades to get the, the surgical care that they, they need. Mercy Ships Charity hopes the new ship will allow its volunteers to help with life-changing operations and improve the education and training of local healthcare providers in Africa's poorest nations. We see an increasing amount of people from Africa who are helping fellow Africans. So we have, we have day crews, but we also have people who volunteer with us on the ship uh, from Africa as well. So basically we are a global community, and I think that's the, that's the beauty of Mercy Ships as well. A, a global community helping for the people in Africa who really need this surgical, uh, surgical help. The Global Mercy can accommodate as many as 950 people during its missions, including 641 crew members, surgeons, nurses, and support staff. Um, so this is why it's transformational, because 
Um, you can imagine in places like Europe or North America, um, people get the care very quickly, in a matter of weeks sometime, when they notice an, a problem. But our patients are waiting years, which causes sometimes social and economic um, consequences to their lives. The Global Mercy depart Dutch shores on March 15th and sail towards Dakar and Senegal. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Nearly half a century ago, astronauts from the Apollo 17 mission collected soil and rock fragments from the moon. Now, that lunar sample has finally been opened at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. It's among the last unopened samples from the final Apollo mission to land humans on the moon. It was collected by NASA astronauts in 1972 when they hammered 14-inch cylindrical drive tubes into a landslide deposit. Some Apollo samples were purposely left unopened so future generations with better technology could study them and unlock more information about the moon. Opening this sample can prepare NASA for collecting new lunar materials when astronauts go back to the moon in the coming years. A bald eagle chick that hatched in a nest near Big Bear Lake, California, is growing fast, three weeks after it was born. Friends of Big Bear Valley, which operates a webcam on the nest, says the chick born March 3rd now weighs more than two pounds. A second egg in the nest, located in a pine tree 145 feet above ground, is no longer viable. But the young chick has been growing in size as it eats bits of fish and meat brought by its parents, a male named Shadow and a female named Jackie. Last year, the pair also laid two eggs, but neither chick survived. Friends of Big Bear Valley is holding a contest to name the chick. It's extending the deadline through tomorrow. The organization will send 35 name suggestions to third grade classrooms in Big Bear Lake to vote on the chick's name after they return from spring break on April 4th. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.